Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. Dr. Casey Grover here once again as your host for this episode. Today's episode is on the topic of naltrexone for alcohol use disorder, but this is a different approach to using naltrexone for alcohol use disorder than we've discussed in the past. The source of my information for this episode was a book that I just finished reading entitled The Cure for Alcoholism by Roy Escapa, Ph.D., that's E-S-K-A-P-A. It's a relatively quick read, or, since I listen to most of my books on Audible, a relatively quick listen. It's written for a general audience, both patients and medical providers, and it's evidence-based. It cites multiple scientific studies. And here's the basic premise of the book, which for me was initially pretty surprising. Drinking alcohol plus taking naltrexone equals a cure for alcohol use disorder. Some people have heard of this approach as the Sinclair method, which is named after the researcher who discovered it. So let's dive in. The author begins with some background on some of the research behind this approach to treating alcohol use disorder. In studies on laboratory rats, researchers noted what they called the alcohol deprivation effect, or ADE. Here's what they observed. They gave rats access to food, alcohol, and water for a study on alcohol consumption. Rats consumed alcohol at various amounts. When the study was over, they took away the alcohol. Several weeks later, they gave rats access to alcohol again for a different experiment. And what they found was that the rats, after having zero access to alcohol for a few weeks, immediately rushed back and began gulping down the alcohol. The researchers observed that the time away from alcohol increased their use upon return to use. And this effect was repeatable in the lab rats when the researchers took away alcohol again for a period of time and then brought it back again. The book next goes on to point out that this is a common pattern of drinking with people. People stop drinking, but when they return to alcohol, such as with a relapse, they often binge. And people with an alcohol use disorder often describe this as a pattern of increasing cravings after stopping alcohol. Once people stop drinking, they develop cravings for alcohol, and those cravings for alcohol often intensify the longer a person goes without drinking. So, when a relapse happens, the person will then binge heavily on alcohol because of the alcohol deprivation effect. In fact, I had a patient like this in my emergency department on my last evening shift. 
He's been on and off drinking for about 11 years. He usually goes weeks to months at a time not drinking, then succumbs to intense cravings, drinks heavily, and then has to go back to treatment to stop drinking again. So, the book stops here to postulate that forcing people to abstain from alcohol is extremely hard due to the alcohol deprivation effect, and that cravings when not drinking because of the alcohol deprivation effect contribute to relapse. As such, the researchers that initially observed this alcohol deprivation effect wondered if there was a way to treat alcohol use disorder without immediately having to stop alcohol. As in, could there be a way to taper down slowly? The book pivots here to discuss how an alcohol use disorder develops, which the author states is a learned behavior. And this comes down to the neurological phenomena of association and learning. Let's take a minute to review the classic Pavlovian experiment with the dog and the bell. In the 1890s, the Russian researcher Ivan Pavlov experimented with ringing a bell and feeding dogs. At baseline, when Pavlov would ring a bell, the dogs would not respond in any way. The bell meant nothing to them. However, when he presented them with food, they would salivate. The presentation of food did mean something to them, namely that they were about to eat. So, when presented with food in anticipation of eating, the dogs would salivate. Pavlov then began ringing a bell just prior to when the dogs would be presented with food. The dogs learned that the bell was a signal that food was coming. So eventually, the dogs would salivate when they heard the bell even before the food arrived. There was an association between the bell and the food, so the dogs would salivate. And this is how an alcohol use disorder develops, as outlined by the author in this book. In some people, and this may in part be genetic, the consumption of alcohol causes release of endorphins, as a reminder, endorphins are our endogenous opioids in the brain, which can cause feelings of calm and well-being, just like taking opioid tablets or parenterally in general. So, over time with repeated consumption of alcohol, the brain begins to associate the alcohol with the feeling of the endorphins, sometimes even before enough alcohol has been consumed to actually release the endorphins. And this underlies some of the craving phenomenon that people experience with alcohol when they are craving a drink. Furthermore, things associated with alcohol, such as the sight of alcohol, wine glasses, the sound of a can being opened, or the smell of alcohol, also become strongly associated with the desire to drink as the brain associates behaviors and stimuli associated with alcohol with that endorphin release from alcohol in the brain. So, a simple summary of this effect of association between alcohol and endorphins to keep things crystal clear. Alcohol causes endorphin release in the brain. This is rewarding because endorphins feel good. This feeling good reinforces drinking and an association in the brain develops. Drinking activities, places, and smells 
become associated with good feelings of alcohol leading to craving. And the ritual of drinking or the taste of alcohol increases the desire for drinking secondary to that learned association with endorphins in the brain. And these last two points may contribute to why people with an alcohol disorder can't have just one drink. The association between the action of drinking and the brain's anticipated reward of endorphins is so strong that it encourages the person to keep drinking, to keep seeking that reward from the association in the brain. So, what does this have to do with naltrexone? Well, there was another part of Pavlov's experiment, which was the phenomenon of extinction. Once the dogs had learned to associate the bell with food, the sound of the bell would trigger them to salivate. Now, what happened when Pavlov rang the bell in trained dogs and didn't give them food? Initially, they would salivate. However, with repeated exposure to the bell without being presented with food, the association between the bell and the food in the brain was extinguished and eventually the dogs stopped salivating when the bell sound was heard. Basically, without the association with the reward of food, the bell sound lost its effect over time. And this is the phenomenon of extinction. And when it comes to naltrexone and alcohol use, this so-called Sinclair method uses naltrexone to block the endorphin release from drinking. Most simply, naltrexone blocks the association between alcohol and pleasure in the brain. With time, naltrexone taken along with alcohol pharmacologically extinguishes the association between alcohol and pleasure in the brain. Let's dig a little deeper into this. The basic treatment algorithm that the book outlines is as follows. Taking naltrexone plus drinking alcohol equals a cure for alcohol use disorder. The author makes the following points over multiple chapters to back this up. Naltrexone is an opioid blocker, so it blocks the effect of any endorphins that are released during alcohol consumption. When a person does not drink and takes naltrexone, there are no endorphins released by alcohol to be blocked by the naltrexone. So, naltrexone cannot cause pharmacologic extinction of the association between alcohol and pleasure in the brain. However, when a person does drink alcohol while taking naltrexone, the endorphins released by alcohol are blocked. As such, the association between alcohol and pleasurable endorphins is blocked, which is how naltrexone begins to cause pharmacologic extinction. Continuing to consistently combine naltrexone with drinking alcohol leads to a slow extinction of the rewarding effects of alcohol over several months, therefore reducing desire to drink, cravings, and amount consumed. Basically, when a person drinks, they don't have that good feeling from the endorphins, so they lose that association between feeling good and drinking. 
the book notes that most patients respond over a time frame of three to four months to see significant decreases in alcohol consumption, though some take longer. And when it is continued, many people end up stopping alcohol altogether as its rewarding effects are completely extinguished. The method involves taking naltrexone one hour before drinking and only when drinking. Patients do not take naltrexone when not drinking as, once again, it is the combination of naltrexone plus alcohol that decreases the rewarding effects of alcohol and leads to pharmacologic extinction. The book cites over 70 scientific studies that show success with this method in treating alcohol use disorder with a list of all of these studies in one of the appendices. The book reports that this method of alcohol plus naltrexone equals cure is effective in over 80% of people with alcohol use disorder. In the 20% for whom this method is not effective, 50% of those patients are not compliant with the treatment regimen, which is why they fail. The other 50% have a permutation in the opiate receptor that makes this method less effective. Now, once alcohol consumption is reduced by taking naltrexone before drinking, the patient must continue to take naltrexone before drinking for the rest of their life. Otherwise, the old neural pathways around alcohol in the brain can come back and the person can relearn and redevelop their alcohol use disorder. And lastly, naltrexone is dosed as 50 milligrams once, one hour before drinking. It's okay to start with 25 milligrams the first two times it is taken to reduce side effects. The patient then continues with naltrexone at 50 milligrams one hour before drinking for every subsequent drink. The book also points out that alcohol consumption decreases over several months with this method, which functions like a self-taper on alcohol. As such, there is no need for medical detoxification. The slow reduction in alcohol prevents withdrawal symptoms. Now, you and I know that a person could still develop withdrawal with this method, but the idea of a slow taper as a result of pharmacologic extinction makes sense. And as the consumption decreases slowly over months, this method also avoids the alcohol deprivation effect where people have to abruptly stop drinking and then return to heavy use when they return to alcohol use. The book recommends that the patients should see a doctor to determine if they are a candidate before they start. Patients with liver impairment or who are on opioids should not be on naltrexone. And the book also recommends that people seek counseling and keep a drinking diary while receiving this treatment regimen. In some cases, the treatment has been so pharmacologically effective at extinction that patients have been able to stop drinking or drastically reduce their drinking to safe levels with just medication and a drinking diary alone. The book reviews multiple studies that specifically show that this method works and also provide several case studies of actual patients and their stories who have stopped drinking alcohol using this method. And there's even another more interesting part to this. 
since many rewarding behaviors or substances have their rewarding effects through the endogenous opioid system of endorphins, there is data that this method can work for other substances and behaviors, including meth and gambling. The book even describes one case of using naltrexone to treat chocolate addiction. Basically, you just take naltrexone one hour before you indulge in the substance or do the behavior, and there again is this pattern of pharmacologic extinction. So what does this mean? For me, this concept of how to use naltrexone in this method to treat alcohol use disorder makes total sense. And I would be willing to try this with patients. I obviously can't really start this in the emergency department or in the acute care setting when I can't do any follow-up, but I certainly would consider encouraging patients to read the book or talking to their doctor to see if they are a candidate. There are also telemedicine providers who provide this treatment. A simple internet search for Sinclair Method Drinking Doctor brought up several different treatment clinics when I searched, including some who do telemedicine. Now, you're probably asking as you listen to this, how can I, in good conscience, allow my patient with alcohol use disorder to drink alcohol? There's two ways to approach this. First, tell your patient that abstinence is the best approach. However, realizing that relapses do happen, provide them with a prescription for naltrexone and let them know that if they do end up relapsing, they must take naltrexone one hour before they drink. Second, this actually may be a much more effective method to treat alcohol use disorder than our traditional models of focusing on abstinence. And we maybe should be using this method a lot more. This book actually has an entire chapter dedicated to why this method hasn't caught on more. And they actually make some really compelling arguments. There is one caveat, which is that if someone is really sick from their alcohol use, such as from liver disease, or someone who is being dangerous, like drinking and driving, having them continue to drink even on the naltrexone may not be a good idea. But for other patients, how many patients have you seen that try so hard on so many different occasions with so many different methods to stop drinking and yet they still relapse? If they haven't tried this method, and this method may have up to an 80% chance of helping them decrease or stop their drinking, in my mind, it's worth at least discussing it with them. Okay, let's move on to some take-home points. This book, as a reminder, was entitled The Cure for Alcoholism by Roy Escapa, PhD. Here are my take-home points. Number one, abstinence from alcohol may lead to high consumption of alcohol upon returning to drinking because of the alcohol deprivation effect. Number two, alcohol, particularly in genetically predisposed people to alcohol use disorder, causes a release of endorphins in the brain, which is felt as pleasurable. Number three, the brain learns associations between different stimuli with repeated exposure, such as the bell causing dogs to salivate in Pavlov's experiments. With repeated use of alcohol, 
an alcohol use disorder develops as the brain begins to associate the consumption of alcohol with the pleasurable endorphin release in the brain from alcohol. This leads to increased drinking and craving of alcohol. Number four, the brain can unlearn these associations between stimuli when the stimuli are no longer linked, and this is called extinction. When the endorphin release from alcohol in the brain is blocked by naltrexone, this can lead to extinction of the association in the brain between alcohol and pleasure. Number five, this so-called Sinclair method for using naltrexone to treat alcohol use disorder involves allowing people to drink alcohol so long as they take naltrexone one hour before drinking. Over time, with adherence to this regimen, naltrexone plus drinking alcohol will result in the pharmacologic extinction of the association between alcohol and pleasure in the brain. This slowly leads to a reduction and even cessation of alcohol consumption over months. Number six, because alcohol consumption decreases slowly over time with this method, alcohol withdrawal is usually avoided or only minimal symptoms are experienced. Number seven, once people have been successfully treated with this method for alcohol use disorder, they must continue to take naltrexone before consuming alcohol or they may redevelop and relearn their alcohol use disorder. And if you can't remember anything else from this episode, here's the line in the book they say over and over again. Naltrexone plus drinking equals cure. That's all for this episode. I thought this was a fascinating topic and I hope you enjoyed it. A quick reminder, if you want to drop me a line, you can do so at addictionemac at fastmail.com. Also, thanks to everyone who's given me reviews on their podcast app. Thanks for listening and thanks for what you do. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.